Hello and welcome to Postgres FM, a weekly show about all things Postgres to grow. I am Michael, founder of PG Mustard, and today I am delighted to be joined by Jonathan Katz, a PostgreSQL core team member amongst other teams, principal product manager AWS, and contributor to PG Vector. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. You know, definitely a huge fan of your work, and I'm very excited for our conversation today. Kind of you to say, me too. So... I reached out to you about this topic because it's about time we did an episode on PG Vector. How could we not have uh, given the last year? But neither of us knew it well. Both Nikolai and myself haven't used it until recently. Nikolai has been using it. So we wanted to make sure we covered it. And who better to, well, uh, Andrew Kane was unavailable and you are definitely the, the next best person. So we really appreciated all the content you've been putting out, the talks you've been given on this. So yeah. Thanks for joining. Yeah, happy to be here. I mean, and by the way, when you say next best person, it's like well below Andrew Kane. Andrew has done phenomenal work on PG Vector over the past several years. Yeah, right. And it has been, a f- it's, it's definitely predates the ChatGPT hype, right? It was a couple of years beforehand. Do you want to give us like a little bit of an introduction as to, to, to what it is and how you came to become involved with it? Yeah. So PG Vector, you know, at surface sounds, you know, very simple. It's, a Postgres extension that allows you to store and search vectors. And I mean, I'll talk a little bit about how I got involved in it, but really to understand, you know, how this all came to be, it actually helps to look back in history of Postgres. Postgres has actually always been able to support vectors, you know, back since the Berkeley days. And it comes down to the array data type. So, I mean, quite simply, a vector is, you know, it's an array with certain properties. It's it has, you know, a certain amount of dimensionality. There's certain things that each dimension must meet. And, you know, there's all sorts of math around it. I mean, it's, you know, there, there's about over a century of like what a vector is. But the reason why it was added to Postgres was not because of any mathematical properties. It was actually as a shortcut to be able to look up ACL rules. So instead of having to do a join to another catalog table to get the ACL rules, it's just embedded within a single column, you know, as, a, as an array. Oh, really? So it's, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's actually pretty cool. And then fast forward to you know, the early 2000s, Postgres added the cube data type, which was mm-hmm. allowed you to index up to 100 dimensional vectors, ultimately using a gist index, but it added all sorts of distance operations, which are the mathematical operations you need for a vector, which you know, we, we can talk a little bit more about that as, as we get into this. But this is to say Postgres has actually supported vectors and vector lookups for a while, but certainly there's been a more, a more pressing need for it. And, you know, in terms of a little bit how I got involved, perhaps my you know, secret in the Postgres community was I originally wanted to go into machine learning when I was in college. And while I was studying it, I was like, oh, it's really fascinating, but uh, to do anything with it, you're going to need a PhD and everything's ad hoc. And, you know, I had a very entrepreneurial spirit. I think you know, I got impatient. And of course, you know, I didn't have the foresight to see like, oh, this will be commoditized and it'll be very simple to you know, access machine learning algorithms through through simple APIs. So credit to where credit is due. Some very smart people you know, identified that and you know, I've been really building towards that. But again, you know, working with machine learning systems in college, the fundamental data type was the vector. And back then, the you know, a high dimensional vector is something considered to be like 20 dimensions. And you think about it, Michael, like, what's a 20-dimensional vector? Like, I can barely, you know, I can understand three, you know, three is like points in space. I can understand four, you know, points in space moving around. What's five? Four plus time, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I studied, I don't know if you know, but I studied maths at university and did 
pretty much just pure. I did I did a tiny bit of stats and a tiny bit of mechanics, but I was best at the pure stuff. And yeah, five dimensions hurts my head to think about it, like in order to try and conceptualize it in any way. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. I, I studied math too, though. Like I would say I was much stronger on the computer science side, but real analysis was one of my favorite classes because you know you were proving like everything in n-dimensional space and again like everything's a vector or a matrix you know you're working you basically spend a semester just studying vector spaces and all their properties and to me like that was fun and maybe it was telling you know fast forwarding you know 20 years later but you know my journey back to vectors came probably a little bit later than you know some folks the peachy vector project started in 2021 uh andrew had the foresight to see that a lot of data was going to be generated around, you know, machine learning and AI systems. And Postgres didn't really have support for the types of vector lookups that we needed. So let's back up a second. So I said that Postgres had support for vectors all along, mm-hmm. but it did and it didn't. One thing about relational databases and Postgres in particular is that you look for exact results. You say like, mm-hmm. hey, I want to find like the 10, you know, well, let's say I want to look up like Michael or Jonathan in a database, you know, I'm gonna write a select query with a where, you know, where Michael is or a name equals Michael, right? Mm -hmm. And you expect to get the results for like, Michael, like all the Michaels in the database. You know, same thing when you're looking up points, Postgres has the ability to index things by k nearest neighbor, or, you know, find all the points that are around me. And again, if I say like, hey, go in and find like the 10 closest coffee shops to me, you're going to find exactly the 10 closest coffee shops. And these things work in, you know, like three dimensions, four dimensions, which is typically where Postgres operates. If you take the PostGIS extension, which adds geospatial support to Postgres, you can index three and four dimensional points, and, and you can do it quite well. The GIST and the SPGIST indexes provide the ability to write these indexes. But as you start adding dimensions, you go from, you know, even like eight to 10 to, to 100, like which is the limit of the cube extension, it's going to start getting very exhaustive first in terms of placing the vector or the, I mean, it's not really a point anymore, but you know, think about it as a point, you're trying to place this in space and try to figure out I have a hundred dimensions and I have to like situate, you know, somewhere in my graph where that is, it's going to be, you know, very exhaustive. And then even if you are doing some kind of exact nearest neighbor search or some index search, there's going to be a lot of cost to it. Yeah. And this is where Postgres, you know, started falling over in a ways, you know, because, a lot of these vectors we're seeing, if you look at some of the popular embedding systems, they're 1,536 dimensions, which again, mind-blowing number. Like, I still don't even know what like a five-dimensional vector is. And here we're talking about 1,500 dimensional vectors. And to do an exact nearest neighbor search, as they call it, or the key nearest neighbor, you have to compare against every single vector that you store in a database. So you have a million vectors that are 1,500 dimensions. You're doing a million times 1,500 computations on them. And that's really expensive. I can tell you it's very expensive because I've had to, you know, I've been personally, you know, benchmarking this for, for quite a bit. And it makes sense, right? It's at minimum a sequential scan of the entire table plus all of the CPU of doing those calculations 100 yeah. times per, well, that 1,500 times per row. 1,500 times, yeah. And, and yeah. you know, we can talk about in terms of like all the, you know, all sorts of the, the optimizations that are in place there. Yeah. But this is where like that, exact nearest neighbor problem gets hard. And again, you know, Postgres didn't have the indexing mechanisms to handle it. Probably we'll further dive into that as we as we talk more. But what, actually, what I'll say, what, one of the big ones is just in terms of just storing the data, storing the data within the index that you have to fit your index value, you know, for a single row within an eight kilobyte limit within the page. So 
that's already going to start creating some constraints. Now, what's also happened over the past 20 years, you know, since the cube type was added in Postgres was a whole field of modern vector research, as I like to call it, and striking to this idea of approximate nearest neighbor. And the deal with approximate nearest neighbor is that you're trying to find your nearest neighbors, but with a best fit, which is you're not going to search every single vector in, the, in a particular table or database. You can search a subset of it, and you're hoping that you're seeing the representative set of the data you want to return. Now, again, for us relational database folks, that's mind-blowing. It's like, wait a second, I'm not returning the exact answers. I'm returning like an approximate subset. And I'll tell you the first time I used PG Vector and I was playing around with it and I was not getting like the results I expected. At first I'm like, oh, this is broken. This doesn't work. This doesn't make sense. And, you know, that was that was the app developer in me, the DBA in me that started diving deep and trying to understand like, oh, wow, there's like a whole science around this that we kind of have to relearn when using a database. Yeah, well, I've, I often say to people, you can run a database without adding any indexes and you can run any query you want and get the results back. It's just faster to use an index where your query result will not change as a result of you having an index. And that is n- that sentence is no longer true if we include these approximate nearest neighbor type indexes. Yeah. So I have to stop saying that or work out a way of caveating it. Yeah, well, just say, well, in this world, when you're yeah. dealing with you know, vector similarity search, but back to the question, you know, how did I get involved in PG Vector? So yes. rewind to about the end of 2022. We may have heard about some of these generative AI systems that were captured in the imagination. And we go and we, you know, type things into them and we get back these, you know, human-like responses. And suddenly it's like, we're trying to think like, oh, what are all the different ways to use it? And one of the techniques that emerged, you know, as these systems grew in you know, rapid popularity was retrieval augmented generation, where these large language models, foundational models have trained on vast quantities of data, you know, typically publicly available data. But you may have data sitting in your database or you know, some other private source that is not publicly available for good reason. It might be your, you know, your, your product catalog or information related to you know, a documentation collection that you have. But you're trying to deliver something to your users, your customers that can take advantage of what's in these generative AI systems, but provide that personalized experience. And to do that, you need some way to be able to take that data that exists in your private databases and safely and securely augment them with your foundational models to be able to deliver that. And that's where the vector search comes in, because the vector search provides a representation that you can search over and be able to to augment those answers. So seeing that, uh, seeing this is how people want to use it, and frankly, people want to use it with Postgres. You know, a lot of a lot of the the user and customer conversations I had were around, "Hey, I already have this data existing in my Postgres database, or I've already built all my search mechanisms around Postgres, and want to be able to simply use it." And there was an extension that did this, and it was PG Vector. So for me personally, it started to become a perfect storm. You know, I'd study this vector stuff in college. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I. I, I was a, a hobbyist machine learningist, albeit like, you know, the, the field, the field has gotten you know, way more complex than when I studied it. And I happen to like databases as, as it happens, particularly Postgres. So I looked at this extension. It seemed like a lot of people were starting to adopt it in rapid fashion. I mean, if you look at the star history of, of PG Vector, you know, it's a curve like this. Like I, I've never seen that before for a Postgres extension. But I stepped back a minute as well. And I saw that these are net new database workloads. You know, a lot of what yeah. we see in Postgres in the past has been 
moving database workloads over, you know, a lot of traditional, you know, transactional relational applications. Though, you know, I call it one, you know, you might call it once in a generation, which in the tech world is every 10 years. There's this new workload that emerges that just generates net new data. So about, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we saw that with JSON. We developed this lingua franca across the web that made it simple to communicate between all these APIs. But there became a demand to be able to store JSON data directly in a database and easily query it out. And Postgres developed a solution for that, being the, the JSON and the JSONB data type, which became quite efficient at being able to query it. And what was nice is that, you know, the Postgres community rallied, rallied around what people were doing and created yeah. you know, a, very, a very efficient, effective solution. Side note, I've talked to, to one Postgres user that has 40 terabytes of JSON in a single database, Ooh. and they say Postgres rocks it. Which <laughs> I'm like, wow, that that's great. I'm glad. I'm glad it works. Um, that's so nice for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I'm like, I'm like, it is really cool. Um, I, you know, again, I can't figure out how I would personally do it, but I'm glad that you know it works really well for them. But we're seeing something similar with vectors. You know, mm-hmm. vectors. Vectors are just a data type. You know, it's a it's actually a well studied data type. It's something you kind of look at. You know, in your introductory computer science classes, but. When it comes to efficient data search and retrieval, there's like so many nasty properties with them that make it like a really fun and challenging problem to work on. But the thing is like, this is, you know, this is this new workload that is going to be available to databases, including Postgres. And for me personally, I want to make sure that we're positioning Postgres in a way to handle it. So where I got started with the PG vector was first using it, helping to get it deployed at AWS, but like any open source project, if you're interested in it, just participate. There's a few things that I particularly focused on, which was performance, both from a contribution standpoint and a testing standpoint. And first, I would just want to say a large chunk of you know the performance features have been developed by Andrew Keane. Like he's done an awesome job on it. And more recently, Heike uh, uh, Linenkangas has even further improved the performance on it. Uh, nice. Where where I stepped in was both just benchmarking to be, make sure that we're focusing on the right areas of performance and trying to prioritize what things to look at. And a few patches here and there, um, particularly around uh, some of the index costing early on for, for IVF flat. But yeah, I saw that. Oh, thank you. I would love to get onto performance and tips for people. But before that, I hadn't thought of this as net new data. That's a super interesting way of looking at it. And I hadn't thought of JSON as necessarily net new data. I was thinking of it much more along the lines of the NoSQL workloads that felt quite competitive with the relational uh, for a while. But yeah, really interesting way of looking at it. And it, it does feel like an opportunity much like that did to be able to handle more within Postgres with all of the benefits that, that we've done episodes on uh, the pros and cons of having data inside and outside using specialized databases, but you get gained so many benefits like the transactional nature of things or the low latency or being able to uh, join things together. Like there are so many benefits of having it all together. So, and not to mention the lower maintenance overhead or the lower operational knowledge needed of uh, managing multiple systems. So yeah, great point. Love it. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. So I was looking at through your PRs and the IVF flat and the, uh, the IVF flat costings uh, was looked like a core cool improvement to to make sure Postgres is using indexes in more cases where indexes would be faster, which is the age old uh, cost uh, optimization problem. Um, yeah. And 
also more recently, you did some great blog posts on the addition. So IVF flat was the first index type that PG Vector supported. And then more recently, uh, got added a very, well, not as new as I expected when I look back at the history, but the competing index type HNSW, which you've also been involved in uh, tuning, I've seen. Yeah, so IV flat was first. And mm-hmm. I think you know one of the reasons why is that it is a bit simpler to implement. So it's a clustering mm-hmm. algorithm. Clustering algorithms are well studied. I mean, there's continued being improved. But one of the things you have to think about when you're looking at implementing these algorithms is that something that might work for an in-memory workload doesn't necessarily work for a database workload yeah, where you're yeah. going between memory and you know, an I.O. level, you know, be it, mm-hmm. you know, wherever your storage may reside. And with IVF flat, you know, where, where I began getting involved was at AWS, we had rolled out PG Vector. Mm-hmm. I started talking to some of our customers who were early PG Vector adopters. And, you know, it was definitely all over the board. But you know, I was talking to one who was, you know, definitely very savvy on uh, vector searches in general. And they were remarking that when they were trying to increase the number of probes in their query. So a probe, so let's step back. So the way IVF yeah. flat works is that you build clusters of vectors. So let's say you have let's keep it simple, you have like 10,000 vectors. What you want to do is you want to try to bucket them into lists. So let's say you, you want to have 100 lists. So there would be um, 1,000 vectors. No, there would be 100, 100 vectors per yep. list. There we go. Clearly, clearly, I did well with my math major. Arithmetic was not included, right? Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, after a certain year, you never saw a number. So you have 100. So, so let's back up. So we have 10,000 vectors. We want to put them in a 100 list. Each have 100 mm-hmm. vectors. What happens with IBF flat is that you try to find centers. So you want to find all the vectors you know, near a particular center, because the idea of that is that those are going to be the most similar vectors to each other. So that way, when you do a lookup, you're going to one of those centers. And the idea is that these are likely, yeah. by approximation, the vectors that are most similar to the ones that you're looking up. However, it may not be, because let's say you have you know two centers here and here, and your query vector is here. Yeah, which one are you closer to? I had to have somebody explain this to me like twice. And the second time they used the analogy, it worked better for me. If we go back to two dimensions and look at, let's say, a map of, let's say, Europe, and we had the countries laid out, we could have, for example, it's probably not a great analogy, but you could have the capital cities. And first off, we could compare any one point and say, which capital city is this nearest to? That's a much cheaper operation than looking at every single city. And then we can go into that country and look at oh, which of the actual towns or cities are we closest to. But if we're, if something's close to a border or the fact that not all countries are the same size, we, you can end up in situations where you don't necessarily get the right center or, uh, or country by doing that first one. Is that, is that a reasonable analogy? Yeah, that's really good because I started thinking about that. So I'm based in New York and I'm thinking what capital am I closest to is technically Trenton, which is in New Jersey. So, you you know, and, and, you know, if I just looked at one probe, it would say like, oh, you're in New Jersey. Yeah. Actually, I think it would probably take three probes because I think Albany is the third closest capital to. There you go. So there you go. Yeah. Great analogy. So probes is the number. So you'd then do that first search and say, which are the three closest centers yeah, centers, list, list. I mean, list is the term that's used. You might also right. be, it might be used interchangeably with centers. So if we increase that number of probes, we're increasing the cost of doing the query because we're looking at more things, we're comparing to more things, but we're increasing the likelihood we're going to get back the correct result or the number of things that are correct. 
Oh, oh. Right. The, in our expected set. So the measurement of expectation is recall. So if you know that these set of vectors are like your actual 10 exact vectors, but you get like eight out of the 10, then you have 80% recall. So with IVF flat, as you say, as you increase the number of probes, you're going to increase your recall. But you're gonna, you are going to increase the, the query time. Yeah. Now, in that patch we were talking about, the problem is that we were actually overcosting. So anytime we were above five probes, we, we then flipped back to a sequential scan, which wow. will give you 100% yeah. recall, but like it was taking the query time from, you know, it was like a 50x increase in query time based upon the data set. And we definitely still had room to grow. So the first patch really was focused on let's get the costing to be a more reasonable level, which gets into, you know, startup costs being you know, one of those elements. For yep. me personally, it was it really was my first time like diving into the query planner code and definitely saw like all sorts of interesting things. I mean, first off, like the query planner code is uh, there's a level of brilliance to it. Like it encapsulates yeah. a lot. And like the work that folks have done over the past, you know, 35 years tuning, it is quite remarkable. I also say that it is quite clean. Yep. It is. It takes a lot. Like, there's a lot of it, right? So, like, there's a lot to dive into. But like, once you get into it, you can you, you can navigate your way around. Editing it is another story. <laughs> it's one thing to understand it. It's another thing to, to propose a recommendation. But what's really cool about Postgres is that you can make a lot of impact within an extension, or basically you yeah. can add this functionality without having to fork Postgres. You could just write it in a separate module and then add it in. And Peach Vector does this through the index access method interface, which is actually, you know, quite quite robust. Like we build index types that don't fit the natural, you know, B tree ordering of a, of a relational database. So it's quite powerful there. And we were able to ultimately get, I'd say, pretty good costing for IV of flat without having to make any upstream modifications to Postgres. Nice. For now. And the other yeah, so on on the IVF flat. Because of these centers, my understanding is it doesn't necessarily, it suits a, a data set you already have that is static or, or not changing much. Because if you're adding data, it, it can't uh, adjust as it goes. So there is this, uh, this trade-off in, inherent in it. And I'm, I'm guessing some of the customers you were talking to had different workloads that wouldn't necessarily suit that. And uh, what actually, what, what happened with your customer conversations next? Yeah, so th- so that's a good discussion, and I'd say you know th- let's burn it. Like it's it's users of PG Vector in general. You know, a lot of these conversations I have in the open source project, which is yeah. again awesome. So th- that's definitely something that came up. That if my data my data set, you know, if I keep adding vectors to the data set, or you know, every now and then you update them as well, or yeah, even delete them. What happens is that the centers start to skew because where you calculated where all these centers are may start shifting. So your results might start shifting as well, and they may not. You might not be getting the the expected results or the recall that you that we'd want to see. The other thing as well is that for a lot of app developers, I mean, first off, again, you have to wrap your head around approximate nearest neighbor that you may not be getting the exact results that you expect. And like I said, I tripped up over that as well. Like it's you know it is a it's normal to to make that mistake. You know you have to learn something different. The other thing is that it started turning app developers into DBAs in the sense that you had to worry mm. about some of your tuning parameters. And granted, you know, there's two of them, right? There's the number of lists when you build the index, which is not necessarily terrible because you are, you know, as an app developer, you're still writing your your SQL code, you are creating that index. But you have to think, like, what is the number of lists? And the PG Vector project gives some guidance on the number of lists to pick, but it's still like you have to experiment. 
And then you have to be mindful of things like, oh, am I adding more data to it? Do I need to re-index? How do I re-index? You know, who's doing the re-indexing, et cetera. And then you have to select probes, which again, you know, you're writing queries possibly in your ORM and suddenly you have to set like this magic parameter to, to choose, you know, how many of these lists you want to visit during a query. So it's not as simple as set and forget. And, you know, that's when I come back to my history of being an app developer, I always want to just write code and I want to all just work. Yeah, I happen to explore the database as a side effect of that, not, you know, as a first order principle of that. So it became time to explore an algorithm that could be closer to set and forget. Like none of these approximate nearest neighbor algorithms are set and forget, but mm-hmm. we can at least make it easier. And this is where HNSW came in, a hierarchical graphical small worlds. So HNSW is a little bit different than IVFI because it's not cluster-based, it's graph-based. And when you hear a graph, you can actually almost hear, you know, a graph is a superset of a tree. So even though Postgres is very tree-based in a lot of its algorithms, implement something graph-based as well, you know, particularly with the custom index framework. And the way an HNSW works is that you build a hierarchy or layers of vectors. And as you go down the hierarchy, the layers get denser and denser and denser. And the idea is that you start at a top layer and you try to find you know, which vector, you know, which vector am I closest to? You find like your local maximum or effectively like the vector I'm closest to, then you go down and you search within that area. And you find the one that you're next closest to and you go down and then it's even denser and you search and so on and so forth till you get to the final layer. And the vectors that you should be clustered around are most likely the vectors you're most similar to. When you're building the index, there's two parameters that you now you have two index building parameters. You have something called M, which is the number of vectors that you're linked to in a given time. And PG vector defaults to 16. And you have something called EF construction, which is the search radius that you're keeping as you're descending down it. The idea that if you look at a larger search radius, you're going to see the vectors that you're more similar to. The idea also with a larger M is that you're going to be clustered to vectors you're more similar to as well. But there, there's definitely trade-offs between you know, how you pick that. What happens is that when you actually do the query, you should be looking over a smaller space. So IVA flat is going to grow linearly as you add the number of probes, and it's going to grow linearly by the number of vectors that are in each list. So the idea is that if you can keep the list relatively small, you're going to be able to do faster searches with IVA flat. But there's also trade-offs to that as well, that you might not be getting the recall that you want. So you can see on IVA flat query can get expensive over time, particularly if you're linearly growing it. With HNSW, you're only searching over a smaller subset of the space. And again, this could be dictated by your one search parameter, which is uh, EF search, but you're only looking at a subset of the graph. So you're going to be looking at far fewer vectors. And the idea is that you're being put into a cluster that's very similar to you. So there's trade-offs. With IVF yeah. flat, I can, I can build the index super quickly. And technically, if I'm only using one probe, I might be able to query it super quickly. But the trade-off is that to boost recall in IVF flat, you know, what we've seen empirically is that it's going to it's going to start getting more expensive. With HNSW, we can query really quickly and we can query, you know, and again, the results are showing that we can query and get high recall or, you know, high, you know, we're basically seeing the expected results and, you know, with you know, pretty good accuracy. But the trade-off is going to be on the build time because we're going to have to do a lot mm-hmm. more work up front to build that hierarchy and see all of the, you know, basically try to visit enough vectors that seem most similar to me. And that's the push and pull between the, you know, these two algorithms and just ve- you know, vector similarity search in general is that you're going to have to pay the cost somewhere and you have to figure out what that cost is going to be and what makes the most sense for your workload. 
With HNSW, at least, you know, if you're willing to pay that upfront cost, which, you know, a lot, it seems like a lot of folks are. Yeah. You are going to get like this very high performance, high recall system, most likely. And again, there are other factors that go into this as well, including your embedding model or how you're querying the data or how quickly you're ingesting the data. So like, there's, there's a lot to consider here. Yeah. I'm a performance guy at heart and I love it when there is actually a true trade-off and people, uh, people in different situations will have different preferences. But to me, it seems like a lot of the currently popular use cases can pay or have a, have a desire for as high a recall as is possible within a latency uh, threshold. Like, so they're willing to pay some latency and build like index build time costs for as high uh, a uh, recall as possible to a point. And then that everyone has like a different point at which that is. But yeah, I actually wanted to ask the almost the opposite question. Do you see some use cases where the index build time itself is the primary driver and or any other reasons that you're seeing people choose IVF flat at the moment? Yeah, there are cases where you might be needing to do rapid loads and mm-hmm. a bit of analysis, but you know, it's very transient where I want to do. So, so, so one of the cases I've heard is that there's a system with, let's say like hundred million vectors, and mm-hmm. it's really more about getting a rapid build and doing a spot check on the data within it, as opposed to having something that's permanent that needs to be run all the time. I think it's like oh, a lot cool. of these transient or ephemeral workloads where an IVF flat index can make sense. But frankly, like I've talked to people who have just rolled out production systems with IVF flat with several mm-hmm. million vectors in it. They're perfectly happy. They're like, we're getting the results that we need. We're getting it in the amount of time that we expect it to, to return the query in. And they're completely fine with it. So some of it is personal preference. And some of it, like I said, depends on other factors, such as the data that has been vectorized. Like, you know, how similar are the vectors based upon the Im- embedding model? And are you able to get the distances within a range where you're seeing that the, the set that you want? Awesome. That's really interesting. So you've got a great talk on this that I'll link up uh, that you gave recently at, at PGConf EU. And you've also had a couple of great blog posts on the releases around 0.5.0 and 0.5.1. I'll link those up so people can read them uh, in their own time. I did actually want to ask you, you mentioned some tuning, like some people becoming DBAs and having to think about, uh, you, know, you mentioned right up top the, the page size of Postgres, for example. Do you want to talk a little bit about why that's important and some of the lower level stuff that people need to think about when they're doing this? All right. So, so tuning or technical, I heard two different things. Let's go tuning as more practical. We don't have to dis- explain toast. We've, uh, we've done a whole episode on <laughs> toast before, but some, like, there was some interesting stuff in there that really got me thinking that I hadn't thought about before. Yeah. So, th- so this, yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of areas to go into. So, so just to briefly recap, because I think this does, this does impact tuning. So toast is a system that, well, step back further. So the foundational unit of Postgres is the page. Mm-hmm. That's the atomic unit. When you store data, you're actually storing it within this atomic unit. You're not just storing, you know, a row randomly on disk. It's going to be, you know, fit within a page. By default, the page for Postgres is eight kilobytes. Now you can recompile Postgres to use a different page size, but most folks just use the default and for, for a lot of good reasons. What's interesting is that, you know, this, so, so, so if you have data that doesn't fit within a page, what happens is that it gets toasted. Uh, and it gets stored out of line, and you can store it arbitrarily large. I believe it's up to uh, one gigabyte per yeah. field. Now, what's interesting, well, there's a few interesting things here. So first, 
Postgres has what's called a minimum toast threshold, which is two kilobytes. So anything above two kilobytes is going to get toast, unless you change that threshold. The second thing is that index pages must abide by that eight kilobyte limit. And you can actually toast data in line with an index page Mm -hmm. to shrink it down a bit so you can get a little bit more on that index page. But if it's going to be over eight kilobytes, Postgres can't index it. So this is where it gets interesting for vectors for a few reasons. So first, any vector that's above that two kilobyte threshold, which I believe, I think I forgot off the top of my head, it's around like 514 dimensions for, for PG vector currently, it's going to get toasted. Okay, that might, that might seem okay. But any vector currently, you know, there's a hard cap in terms of indexing uh, PG vector vectors of 2000 dimensions, which there are some valid use cases I've heard of vectors that you know, go beyond that size. But Typically, most things are going to fall within that range, you know, know, for for now. Now, there's a few things here. Like, first, you're like, well, you say you can toast things in line. So why can't we toast these vectors in line? Well, I had to be the bearer of bad news, but it's actually very challenging to compress effectively, you know, 2,000 dimensions of, you know, random, you know, floating point numbers. Yeah. So there's not really much you can do other than dimensionality reduction to, to, to shrink it down. Mm-hmm. There are some techniques that are out there called quantization, which you could touch on after this. But you know, they you know they all have their trade offs, such as you know losing information. So the second thing is that toasting can screw up the query planner a bit. What do I mean by this? So currently, when the query planner is trying to estimate parallel workers or mm-hmm. essentially reading data in parallel. It's going to look at, it basically looks at your key pages or your main table pages and uses that to drive the estimate. And the thing about Toast is that your heap pages actually be quite small. You know, in this case, let's say if an ID and a vector, well, I'm not going to have that many pages in my regular heap because it's just going to be a bunch of IDs and a pointer to my Toast table. The Toast table is going to be quite large and likely you need those parallel workers to suck all the data out. But what Postgres is going to do is it's going to underestimate the workers today. And it actually makes sense historically because the data that you typically toasted was not in your search path or your ordering path. It's typically something that you need to do some post filtering on as you pull it out. You know, think like, you know, a big blob of text. Yeah. But here we are actively querying the vectors. We are calculating distances between them. So we probably want them closer to like our main set of data. Now we can choose to store the vectors in line. You use this technique called set storage plane, and that will keep your 1500 dimensional vector in line with your, you know, w- you know, with your other table data. But also keep in mind, you know, this is going to cost a full page because a 1500 dimensional vector is about six kilobytes, and Postgres is just going to allocate a page for each of them. So, you know, no matter what, you're 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 storing eight kilobytes of data in them. So, yeah, so this gets very interesting. Yeah. So, so in terms of tuning, again, part of this, you got to look at what your workload is and what makes the most sense in that. You know, what we're seeing so far with H, at least with HNSW is that, you know, even if you're toasting a 1500 dimensional vector, the estimates are still pretty good overall for making sure that you're using your HNSW index. Um, I haven't seen as much impact there. We saw more impact, particularly with IVF flat based upon some of that costing model. Interesting. I think there's, I think there's some, this is one of those areas where I think there's some improvements to how we work with toasted data upstream. Um, I think I have a couple of emails or threads, you know, on that subject and, uh, if I get my C chops better, maybe I can propose a patch. But cool. that's a that, that's like one area to be mindful of, of is like mm. how you store the data. And again, I think we're starting to get a little bit more set and forget there. But I think as we see like these workloads increase, it, it is definitely something to be mindful of. From a from a bias standpoint, some a Postgres supporter and advocate, 
I've seen quite a lot of benchmarks that show PG Vector doing very well uh, as a vector database compared to other dedicated systems. So it's a, that's impressive considering they're probably not even tuning some of those lower level things while doing those benchmarks. So it's exciting for yeah. me to hear that there's actually some potential further wins there on the Postgres side. Yeah, I mean, and maybe like hot off the press is uh, Andrew proposed a patch last night for speeding up HNSW index building. Since like the 051 release, there's already been a lot of work to improve this, but the patch last night like even further accelerates it. So there's parallel, there's support for parallel builds for HNSW indexes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the initial work still had to leverage a lot of the data coming from disk as opposed to being fully in memory. The proposal last night is fully in memory. And Ooh. I actually did a test. I was so excited to see it. I did a test. <laughs> um, I have this 10 million 1500 dimensional vector data set or really like 1536 dimensional data set. <laughs> yeah. Uh, random vectors, right? This is really more just for like beating up on performance. You know, I'm not measured recall here, which for real benchmarks, you got to measure performance and recall. But mm -hmm. I'm trying to just understand like how good is the index build time. So I did this with what's currently you know, on the master branch to date. I use this, and then I also did the test with the, the HNSW fast build branch, which is this in-memory system. So I saw a couple of things. So first, this new branch was about, I think it's 7.3x faster at building HNSW index than the other branch. And just to compare, like, let's give wow. some real numbers. So the old branch... Which is, you know, this, you know, the unreleased support for the HNSW parallel builds. It took about three hours and change to build the entire index. And this was with like 64 parallel workers. You know, I'm throwing, you know, this is, this is a big, this is a big beefy box. Yeah. With the new branch, it took 25 minutes. It's like, <laughs> wow. like, like that's mind blowing, right? These are, these are big vectors. You're doing a lot of computations. And I even had cranked up uh, the EF construction value, which, you know, does increase the time. I did compare it to this previous method I've been recommending, which was concurrent inserts. And I just, you know, I did a spot check between a blog post I wrote about it and this new patch. So in the blog post where I had a lower value of EF construction, it was, I think, 64. I was getting about a little bit over a thousand, a thousand vectors per second, you know, looking over the entire front. With this uh, new technique that Andrew posted, I was getting over 6,500 vectors per second. Yeah, so again, so similar huge, there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, th and this is what's cool about this because this is one of those set and forget things that yeah. you might need to tweak. You might need to tweak like one parameter. In this case, I tweaked the uh, max parallel maintenance workers. But again, huge performance boost in terms of the index build and it simplifies it too because now it makes it truly viable to say preload all your vectors, which will be, you know, a much faster operation than doing a concurrent insert. I mean, because there's a concurrent insert and even like further speed up your load of your vectors. But then you can just do create index, you know, embeddings using HNSW and boom, like you have an index way faster than other systems. And like, this is a key thing too to look at, you know, you touch on this, Michael, is that when you're dealing with this vector data, you got to look at everything. You got to look at your ingestion yeah. time, your index build time, your query time. And, it, you know, you have to focus on all these things because there is a trade-off with, with all of them. Yeah. Well, exciting times ahead. It feels like the most rapidly improving area at the moment and for, for good reason what so i saw on this it's got a great change log uh, pg vector and i saw there's like even the unreleased part so 0.5.2 is currently on there and unreleased so anything you're particularly excited about that's coming up or anything not on that list that you'd love to see yeah 
And I think this is where it really helps to have feedback on how people are using it. So mm-hmm. I'm obviously very excited about parallel HNSW builds. Like this is yeah. <laughs> I like I can't I even like in the middle of that test I was running last night, like I emailed Andrew, like Andrew, the results are amazing. Like I can't I can't wait for it to finish. Like I can see where uh-huh. this is trending. Um so there's two things in particular I'm very excited for. The first, you know, the first and we'll see if it makes it in, but it's around pre-filtering. So a lot of the queries today uh, we've been seeing is like select star from vector table, mm-hmm. order by, blah, 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 you know, limit 10. Find me my 10 nearest neighbors. But what's happening in practice? In practice, it's like select star from table where it has yeah. some condition. Category ID equals this. Order by, blah, 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 blah. So what this is kind of like is really a multi-column index because what will happen is like, Today, either you won't use the index, and effectively you're doing an exact nearest neighbor search, which means very accurate results. And maybe, you know, your data set gets sorted down to a small enough value where it doesn't matter. Like you're getting you're getting a very fast search. But what if you have multiple fields that you need to filter over? Or what if uh, the data set you get back is 50,000 of these, you know, 1500 dimensional vectors like that? This can be exhausted. So there's a patch out there. It's based on a newer paper called HQANN, which I can the PG vector repo right now. Yes. That lets you build effectively a multi-column index where it's able to build the links or group together. Well, there's two things, right? Because you still want to be able to search over your entire vector set and find your most similar vectors. But mm-hmm. you can also group it also groups the the vectors by you know your your filters. So that way you're searching over just your filters and it does that pre-filtering. This has come up by it's almost like uh this is like a what have you done for me lately feature because as soon as you put it out users find like you know more of these case studies emerge and users find like hey like i, I really need this what's great is that there are people who are testing it against real data and this is where if you want to be involved in pg factor you can help is that you see these patches out there please test and report back on them because if you're finding the hq and branch useful describe your use case like there's an open issue where people talk about you know they might say like hey i really need this and what makes it super valuable is when you talk about like, here's exactly how I'm using it, because it just further justifies like this is the, the right direction. I mean, one of the big goals of PG Vector is to try to keep the code base simple to maintain and also make the product simple or the extension simple to use. So hearing more about what people are doing is great. Another patch that I'm excited for, and again, we'll see if it makes it into 052, you know, no guarantees, is being able to support smaller dimensional sizes. So right now, dimensions are four byte floats. But there are definitely embedding models that provide two byte floats or mm. you know, one byte unsigned integers. So there's a couple of branches that have those in there. But again, hearing those use cases will help further support it. Because the added bonus to supporting these smaller dimensions is that we can index larger vectors and that'll be able to yeah. go beyond that uh, 2K limit. Yes, interesting. The one final question I had is do you see any world where this becomes part of core PostgreSQL in the long term? Yeah, so at PGCon 2023 last year, I had a lightning talk, which is basically to first shout to the wind to the community, like, hey, like these vector, these vector workloads, this is real. Like that was still Mm. early, but it's like, hey, this is coming. There's a, I call it like a storm of data coming. Like we want to make sure Postgres is positioned for it. Like this is very similar to what we saw with JSON. And I was able to get an unconference session as well where where we discussed it. And the general consensus was, in the fullness of time, it does make sense to have something like this in upstream Postgres. Great. But there's, I think there's a few things here. First, we have to look at release cycles. You know, Postgres releases yeah. once a year, 
In fact, the feature freeze for Postgres 17 is coming up in about a little less than three months. But effectively, there's a, you know, if you think, let's say they come up with the idea we want to support a vector data type right now, or let's say after feature freeze. I mean, there's effectively an 18 month window before it gets in because we have to go through like the, the whole cycle. And given the pace that this field is moving, we don't necessarily want to wait on the Postgres release cycle. So being able to do this work in PG Vector or other extensions does help accelerate adoption of Postgres as a, as a vector database, so to speak. The other thing is that once it is in upstream Postgres, you know, that is the on-disk format. Like that is, that is the rule. Yeah. And uh, Tom Lee made a very good point during that unconference session, which is like, let's see you know, how things shake out in terms of what the, the on-disk format is. Now, PG Vector is also trying to stay true to that contract and try to keep the on-disk format as, as uh, you know, effectively not to change it. Because as soon as you change it, you got to like rebuild, re-index, restore everything. That's a costly operation. So PG Vector is trying to apply the same level of rigor as Postgres to implementing these features, but it can move a little bit faster because it is an extension. It can have its own release lifecycle. So... I think that's where the, the, you know, is that I'm not going to say this is an official or unofficial community position, but is there interest in supporting it upstream? Absolutely. But given the rapid emergence and development we need to make, we're trying to make as much progress as possible within PG Vector. Here's the other thing, too, like the big difference between now and JSON. We have the index access method. We can do this in an extension. That's a, you know, that is a big change since, you know, 10, 15 years ago. That's really good, to, interesting uh, and good to know. There's another big difference, which is cloud providers. So whilst whilst it could be in core Postgres, currently a lot of so people that install Postgres themselves or manage Postgres themselves more specifically can install PG Vector, and people that don't are often on a managed service provider. Those folks, most managed service providers have added support for PG Vector already, which is uh, the fastest I've ever seen them add a a new extension, and it's been pretty much everyone. So most folks that want access to PG Vector, at least some version of it, maybe not always the latest version, can have it now as well. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely exciting to see all, all the adoption of PG Vector. And yeah, yeah, you know, you know, to tease a little bit, I think I still think the best is yet to come. Like I think PG Vector has made a lot of progress in in the past year. I mean, it's been a tremendous work by the community, and in particular Andrew. Like I can't I can't say enough nice things about the the work Andrew has done and really the diligence he's put into it. And I still think there there's more to do. Like I said, even just like, well, the, the patch that came out last night, I mean, just shows mm. that there's still even more performance that we can get out of it. And for folks uh, listening, that we're recording on the 16th, so I'll, I'll link that up. Wonderful. Jonathan, thank you so much. Is there anything else I should have asked you but didn't or any last things you wanted to say? Yeah, I think one of the big things, you know, when you think about contributing to open source is you know, writing a patch, writing code. And I'm going to say this in the context of PG Vector, but I think this applies to, to any project. I mean, even, even Postgres itself is that there are many different ways to contribute. Testing is huge, you know, because testing, mm-hmm. particularly if you can test something that's close to a real workload, like don't test your production workloads with these things, but like test something that's close to production. That helps because that helps drive the use case and hearing how you use something and just talking about your different use cases and being supportive of the community in that way. That helps helping to write documentation, helping to you know advocate for something that you think can help others. Again, all these things can help a project. So if you want to contribute to PG Vector or Postgres, there are a variety of different ways. And you know, maybe to, uh, as it's top of mind right now, PGCon, which was the yeah. effectively the annual developer conference, it's evolved. It's now called pgconf.dev. 
pgconf.dev. Um, yep. It's being held in Vancouver at the end of May. I can tell you, I'm, I'm, I, I can almost guarantee uh, vector workloads will be, you know, a, a topic of discussion there. But just all things Postgres, and the idea is that, you know, while certainly a lot of the the folks at the discussions are around technical hacking topics, really, if you step back, the gist is how do we continue building and growing the Postgres community? So, if you are uh, the CFP actually just closed yesterday, or when this airs, probably a few days yeah. before, but. That's a great way to participate as well, you know, even if you're new to the community, because I know personally, at one point, I was new to the community. And the first time I went to PeachyCon, I'm like, oh, my God, like, I know nothing about <laughs> how a database works. Like, I can write a select query, but geez, but it is a way to help have impact on the community. And, you know, just talking to folks who are working on the software, or working on events or hosting podcasts or finding ways to help grow the yeah. community it's a it's it's a great way to 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 participate and help grow so uh certainly uh you know think about attending and, and participating and again there, there's also just different ways to contribute so that's the parting message i have i'm far from a, a database hacker i can i can write like a couple of lines to see here and there but where i've you know found a home in open source is working on all sorts of other aspects around open source projects what a great message to end on Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much for your time, Jonathan, and for everything you do in the community. Oh, likewise. Thank you for having me on your, your wonderful podcast. Oh, cheers. Take care. Take care. Goodbye.